in it. Well, as we um, said in the very beginning of our studies, we came together um, to begin the study of the book of Acts. All through this book, we see the recordings of many lives being transformed by the power of the gospel, don't we? And we're going to see more and more of that in these chapters of ahead. But the chapter in the lesson that you did this past week, you saw the Ethiopian eunuch being witnessed to by Philip, right? And his life, immediately because of his belief, uh, which led to baptism and rejoicing, his life began, we trust, um, to be transformed like our, all of ours have once we've had that same encounter. So I thought it was interesting, and you probably did as well, that Philip met him where he's at, and he started to teach him and to tell him about the good news of Jesus. So when we come to one of those stories, we have to think about our own story, don't we? And um, the importance of sharing our stories and sharing our testimonies. So this morning, uh, we are privileged to hear from two of our Habits uh, leaders and to hear their testimonies and their stories, how someone first told them the good news about Jesus. So um, it is a privilege to hear from them. The first one will be Lynn Eriks. And as many of you already know, uh, Lynn Eriks is one of our discussion group leaders, has been for a few years. And so some of you are in her group this year. Maybe you were in her group last year. But I could go on and on and on telling you lots of wonderful things. But she's going to tell her own story, so I'll let her do that. Um, the other one will be Susie Everett will follow Lynn, and she too is going to tell how the gospel has transformed and is transforming her life. Uh, Susie does many, many things here and has for many, many years here in the Ministry of Habits of the Heart. One thing, she takes care of all of our administrative tasks, and I can't imagine the details she has to keep in her head, and she does it well. In addition to that, um, many times you don't see her here because she's back there, and she's taking care of our audiovisual. So, um, Thank you, both of you, for serving, but thank you this morning for being willing to share your story. Okay, Lynn? Well, good morning. It's a privilege to be before you today, and it's an absolute terror, too. I'm so glad I'm going first, Susie, and I can hardly wait till it's over. My name's Lynn Eriks, and I'm going to tell you the story of how I became a follower of Christ and how it's made an eternal difference in my life. I'm the youngest of three with two older brothers, both I looked up to and admired. Our home was warm, secured, and filled with laughter around our dinner table. My oldest brother, my dad, would banter puns back and forth until my dad would cry with laughter. I always laughed along, but with four and almost eight years separating me from my brothers, I rarely knew what the jokes were about. Still, laughter's contagious. I also remember our home as being filled with lively conversations, that's putting it nicely, often turning into debates regarding current events. Those discussions fostered a true love of oral arguments that would prove useful to me later in my career. Our family life was very sports-oriented. As I nearly grew up at the baseball and football fields, my mom told me one of my first words was session stand and canny for candy. I followed in my brother's athleticism, playing various sports, but mainly soccer from about age 10 through four years of college. Our church life was not a big part of my growing up years. We went to a Methodist church until I was about 10, I think, um, and about that time, nearly two-thirds of the church left for reasons I still don't entirely understand surrounding a pastoral staff change. 
in those years. I never remember being taught from the Bible, and I don't remember Bible stories from Sunday school. I remember church shopping, which I hated because I was so shy, um, but apparently we never settled on one after that. About the only church experience I remember was VBS one summer and going to Christmas church at my grandmother's church in Indianapolis. I also went to her church on various weekends when I spent the night with her, which was a regular occurrence in my growing up years. However, I had absolutely no clue who Jesus was. I simply believed in God. That was enough for me, I suppose, and I never had anyone questioning me otherwise. Still, I had a secure home with parents who loved me. I knew my parents loved me, and yet I rarely heard the actual words from them. I never really felt loved like I wanted to be. This was not because my parents weren't loving, they were, but I honestly think that even at a very early age, I felt that empty place in my heart that only God can fill. I, don't, I didn't know it at the time, however. So without realizing it or knowing it at the time, I sought love and approval through works, accomplishments, and other relationships. I was a people pleaser and always sought the approval of others. My teachers in school referred to me as a model student. Throughout all my education, I was an A student with maybe a B thrown in there every once in a while. And I was in honors courses throughout my entire education. I won writing contests and poster contests, attended leadership conferences in and out of state, was involved in this club and that club and that organization. I really, truly can't even list them all. And I earned eight varsity letters in high school in three different sports. I could really go on and on. My senior award, I don't know if any of you had those in your high school, was Miss Brown Nose, easily translated into teacher's pet. These things, accomplishments, however, they didn't come easily for me. I worked very hard at them. It was my whole world. Once in high school, accomplishments and accolades in the classroom and on the field were no longer sufficient for my approval-driven reassurance. I started dating and always had a boyfriend and surrounded myself with the in crowd. I started dating an upperclassman who lived a block away from me growing up. During the two years we dated, I became friends with all of his circle of friends. And for the most part, hanging out with them was clean fun, but there was a fair share that was not, without many boundaries and more than a few parties. These were not good decision-making years for me socially. From there, I dated others, and I was the kind of girl who always felt the need to be dating someone. The term looking for love in all the wrong places comes to mind. It fit me. Even the girls I chose as friends were wrong. Yes, I was a real people pleaser, but all the while, I was not pleased nor happy. My parents never really stressed the importance of any of these things, accomplishments, relationships, or sports. Maybe grades. They, they did care about that. But they were pleased when my performance in high school was so positive. If good grades, academic accolades, and a long-term boyfriend were any indication of how much I was loved, then wow, I was loved. Complicating my home life were some health issues with my dad. I remember truly being scared he would die before I graduated from high school, or that he would die before I got married. I was constantly worried about the future because of his health, which was poor, due to his own lifestyle choices. I actually resented him and was angry and disrespectful towards him because of how he treated himself. Going away to college was a relief I was looking forward to very much. Ah, but now for the good stuff. Maybe like some of you, my acceptance of Christ was not an immediate thing. 
It was a long journey, nearly six years from start to finish. As best I can tell, it began with a single verse. Philippians 1.27 says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. This was the verse that God used as the impetus in bringing me to himself. The first time I saw this scripture reference, it was written in red ink on my graded German verb quiz in high school. I still have it. There it is. I remember taking this quiz home and looking up the verse in my Bible, the, rare, the one I rarely opened. I had no clue what Phil meant. So I had to look in the chart with common Bible chapter abbreviations to determine where to look. But I looked it up, and immediately I felt like I was missing something, and I wanted to know what it was. What struck me about it were love and community. Love. I felt the love of my teacher, Mr. Griffin, who I deeply respected and admired, and who was an openly devout and strong Christian man in my public high school. In fact, I picked German just because he was a teacher. I didn't really care about German, and I have no clue what any of those verbs up there mean to this day. (laughs) But I looked at that verse, and I thought, your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, not worthy of accolades, accomplishments, relationships, all those things that I listed earlier. Worthy of Christ. Remember when I told you I was a people pleaser? Well, I think my teacher knew, and certainly the Holy Spirit knew, that this verse would minister to my people-pleasing heart. Listen for it as I read it again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He was trying to tell me, Lynn, don't please people. Live your life worthy of the gospel. Live to please the Lord. Well, not surprisingly, I didn't want to disappoint him. I wanted to be firm in one spirit and to know what the gospel was, but it wasn't enough for me to ask him about it. I remember thinking, what is the big deal about Jesus? Like, truly, I had no clue. Why is he the key rather than just believing in God? In truth, I had no idea who God was, and most tellingly who Jesus was. Instead, I thought I was saved because I believed in God, was moral, and did the right thing most of the time. But reading that verse, I also felt a sense of biblical community that the author Paul felt for his fellow Christians. I longed for a community where they called each other to a higher standard and helped each other live up to it. The unity, the friendship, the cohesion— I wish I could tell you that this was a pivotal point in my life and that I found out about the gospel and Christ at that moment, but instead, I went on with my studies, and for the most part, I forgot about that verse on my verb quiz. Fast forward to college. As I mentioned before, I was always worried about my dad's health in the future, and my fear wasn't unreasonable. At that time, my dad was 52, pretty young, and I was a sophomore in college. He uh, suffered a stroke at that time. It was a traumatic event for our family. And I wish I'd known the Lord then. I certainly would have handled it all differently. 
well, Dad didn't have any outward physical manifestation of, manifestations of his stroke. It was all inward. It affected his speech. And quite honestly, his entire personality. It's still hard this many years later. I like to describe it as imagining being in a perpetual state of frustration. Have you ever had a name on the tip of your tongue and you can't think of it and it kind of drives you crazy? That's kind of how it is for him all the time. So you can imagine how frustrating that is. Every negative personality trait that he had is now amplified and every good trait he had is now suppressed. However, I still think he, I still thank God that he's living and I think about how much he might have missed had he not recovered all three of his kids' weddings and the birth of five grandchildren, just to name a few. He's a great grandpa, especially to my four-year-old uh, son, David, who adores my dad. Still, we get a few glimpses every now and then of the real dad, the funny one, the one that cried laughing. He was a great storyteller, an incredible storyteller. My husband, Doug, has seen it once. We marveled at it together as I explained to him what it was like before. I treasure those glimpses, though, because it makes me look forward to the restoration and glorification that God promises us we will receive in heaven when we have restored bodies. This is a wonderful promise, isn't it? Well, during the time my dad had his stroke, there was another Christian man in my life who displayed Christ's love. He was my soccer coach, Scott Stan. He was a constant for me and exemplified a true spirit-controlled temperament during difficult building years for our team and was a source of counsel for me. I asked him his beliefs about everything from predestination to drinking alcohol. The fact that I asked his opinion gives you an indication of what I thought of him. I didn't really ask for other people's opinions very often. I respected him deeply for his faith and his convictions. He was a prayer warrior praying for me and my dad my entire college years. He and his wife would host our whole team for dinners in their home. Whenever I was there, I always saw Lynn's dad on the chalkboard prayer list in their kitchen. I know he faithfully prayed for me and my dad. That impacted me, and it made me consider how he lived his life differently. Somewhere there are tissues. There they are. Ah. Even though Christ's love was evidenced to me through these different individuals, it wasn't until I met my college roommate, Kathy, that I first saw a biblical community lived out, and I wanted it. When I heard her mother speak about different people and different relationships that their family had with others in their church, I realized for the first time that there was another type of belonging of which I could not explain. I had never heard of it, but when I saw how integral church was in their life, I wanted it. It was different somehow, and I knew it. I'm sure many of you aren't surprised to hear that the entire Blakely family has had a big impact on my life. Despite transferring to a different college after freshman year, Kathy and I remained friends throughout our college years. That's one friendship decision I got right. The summer after we graduated from college, Kathy and I started doing the purpose-driven life together. Mind you, when we started the study, I still had no clue who Jesus was. I believed in God, remember? I had no relationship with him. I didn't even know what a relationship was. I didn't even know you needed one. I understood that God was the answer, and I believed in him. And when I say I believed in God, I mean like he exists. That's like as far as I got. But during the time we were studying, she asked me one night in the car, just point blank, 
if I had accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior. She doesn't even remember asking me this. Isn't that funny? The boldness that took, and it really caught me off guard. She, I think, waited until we were in the car so I couldn't walk away or dodge the question. But when you're asked that point blank and you realize that you can't say yes, but you knew that you should, well, that makes an impact on you. From studying that I had already done with her, I knew it didn't really matter if I didn't know who Jesus was, that I could trust him to reveal himself to me. So, in a very uncharacteristically impulsive move, I was all in. I don't remember when it was after, but it didn't take long for me to pray to accept Christ as my Savior. I was baptized within the next year or so. What a relief to be loved completely, not depending, dependent on anything I could do. Almost immediately after receiving me, him as my Savior, the biggest change I can see now looking back was prayer. I began to pray about everything. It's so obvious, like a chapter in a book, because I've kept all the journals that I've ever had. My journals used to be about boys. Now they mostly contain prayers to the king. Through my study with Kathy and in prayer and in reading his word, I began to pray for a godly husband. I wrote a prayer in my journal on July 21st, 2004, that God would give me a godly husband to love for the rest of my life. Mind you, I was in no hurry. I thought, boy, this is going to take a while. But the Lord worked quickly on that prayer, and two days later, I met Doug. And three weeks later after that, I left for law school in Valparaiso. But God put us apart for that first year because otherwise we would have both failed out of school. We are sure of it now. It was the most challenging years for both of us in school. How God protected us during that time from ourselves. I think we needed both to learn patience. But God rewarded our patience and we were married in 2006. Aside from my own salvation in Christ, in relationship with him, Doug is truly God's greatest gift to me. He's not easily angered, is a servant, is energetic and helpful, and is a quiet listener. If you know him, you know what I'm talking about. He's not quick to judge or take offense. He's even keeled and laid back, unless it's about his office or cleanliness. He's a patient listener and is always looking to improve his role in our family. He's affectionate, tells me and our children multiple times per day he loves us and treats us like his treasures. He works so hard for us, displaying his love in the best way, his time. He's grown so much in his own faith since we were married. But had I not focused on Christ, he may have slipped by. How thankful I am for my steadfast, loving husband who loves me as Christ loves the church. It's a true blessing to grow together. Well, my acceptance of Christ as my Savior was in 2004, but making him Lord of my life has been going on ever since. Maybe some of you can relate. In the years after I first believed, I was a greedy, needy student of the word, and many people poured into my Christian life. Kathy's one of them. She still pours into me on a daily basis, and how thankful I am for her friendship. Sunday morning sermons were like a new college course for me to study and devour. I joined Habits, this ministry, and have gained so much knowledge of who Jesus is by studying his word and by being with other wise women. I want to be here in this place, in this ministry, for as long as I can. Patty Hutzel, who you've heard us talk about a lot, who went home to the Lord a few weeks ago, ministered to me in her home weekly on Monday nights for two years as my discipleship group leader. We poured over doctrine every week, prayed together, and generally shared life together as well. It was in her living room that I gave my testimony for the first time. I think I cried the whole time. <laughs> 
The Chapmans, the leaders of our small group over the past 10 years and providers of our premarital counseling, have been instrumental in my Christian growth as well. When speaking about spiritual matters, I'm quite certain I quote Susie more often than any other earthly person. How thankful I am to the Lord for leaders who take the call seriously in shepherding my heart as well as others. Despite all my knowledge of Christ's love and my deepening relationship, God revealed to me in 2012, not that long ago, that I was being selfish with God's love. James 2.19 pierced my heart during the great banquet that I attended. That scripture reads, You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. In other words, I was not much different from the demons referenced in James, even as they believe. That didn't make me feel like I was demonic, but it put into perspective for me that my belief in Christ and my acquiring knowledge of theology really was just the beginning, and I could not be selfish with his love any longer. So initially, I made two changes. First, I, be, I began to use my time um, to disciple a group of high school girls over a period of three years until they went to college. And second, I took a more active role in this ministry. This is, a, this is an area I'm still growing. Even our study this year in Acts has really convicted me to be aware of my shortfalls in the area of witnessing. I must use my words to speak the gospel. I can't just live my life differently from non-believers and hope and pray they will notice and ask why. I must tell them. Perhaps the biggest change I made as a result of my identity in Christ was that I quit my job. I'd been working part-time as an attorney in, law, in a law firm in Indianapolis. I enjoyed my part-time work. It gave me the, both, the best of both worlds, I thought. However, after much prayer, my husband and I both felt convicted that my place was home with our then two-and-a-half-year-old and, and nine-month-old so I could minister and shepherd their malleable hearts full-time at home. Around the same time, we sold my husband's practice here and bought another one and moved. We didn't expect all these changes all at the same time, but that's how it worked out. Those changes begged our trust and reliance on our provider God, but he did not disappoint. Sometimes God gives us beautiful confirmation of our decisions and the amount of change our family incurred during a very short period of time. While maintaining financial stability and a peaceful home was certainly enough confirmation for us. The me before Christ would have worried incessantly about such changes. And, and the me before Christ cared about worldly accomplishments, including my own career. I don't worry about these things anymore. And in the future, if I go back to work, it won't be because I want to accomplish or that I need a career to feel validated or affirmed. I get that all in my, in my identity of Christ follower. Most recently, my comforting father reminded me of who I am in Christ this past summer. It started on the day of my son's fourth birthday. He'd been complaining of mild hand pain, but on the morning of his birthday, he couldn't open his own birthday gifts because his hands hurt too badly and his fingers would not bend. He didn't hold silverware to eat, couldn't turn a doorknob, and generally had difficulty with all fine motor and increasingly gross motor functions as well. He ran a low-grade fever, but otherwise continued to play and run and jump. It was peculiar, to say the least. We took him to the doctor, and after a week-long trial of a period of examination and diagnosing that went on, we finally um, thought that he just had a virus. His symptoms were stable, and then nearly a week after his symptoms began, his fever spiked to 103, and he couldn't walk. He couldn't stand. 
He cried for me to get him out of bed to take him to the bathroom. I couldn't even stand him on his own feet because they hurt too badly. In the end, it really was all a virus, viral synovitis. It was a long week, and honestly, the lingering results of that virus lasted for almost a month for him, and maybe even to this day. The point is that through it all, I had peace that passed all understanding. Truly, I did. I did not freak out or worry incessantly, even if it was my nature to worry myself sick. I felt grounded, strong, able to handle the stress. We had so many people, many of whom are in this room, praying for a little David. We had meals delivered, and dear friends, take our daughter for outings. Um, through it all, we were supported by the body of Christ and comforted by his Holy Spirit. It was confirmation for me that I am his and he is mine, that I belong to a body of Christ with all its glorious benefits, peace at the very top. It was beautiful. I think back to when I first realized there was a biblical, biblical community out there, I wanted it, and praise God, now I have it. No longer lonely and isolated. I belong to a rich community of believers. I didn't really think that would choke me up, but it did. <laughs> I know what it is to be loved by a heavenly father so perfectly, and the relief I felt when I learned that no matter how much I labored in vain to do so, I could never earn his love, nor lose it. No one... Nothing will snatch me from his hand. Nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. I may still be a people pleaser. God didn't change my personality. Instead, he reoriented the object of my people pleasing. I seek, albeit not perfectly, to please him. I know what joy is, true and pure joy that is from him, not happiness that is derived from circumstances or situations. I know where I'm going, why I'm here, and enjoy a community of believers until I get there. I want to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Good morning. Thanks, Lynn. It's okay that you cried. And apparently it was nine years ago that Patty Hutzel and I were right back there doing the audiovisual for your wedding. We didn't know each other then. Um, didn't realize it had been that long. Well, I'm Susie Everett. I've been married to Tom for 30 years, and we live in Brownsburg. We have three children, a son 25 and two daughters 23 and eight. And yes, there's a story there when you're going to hear it. We have been a part of this church for more than um, 14 years, and I've been part of Habits of the Heart almost all that time. Many of you know that my dad died unexpectedly six weeks ago, and so the timing of this testimony might be a surprise. It is for me, too. Right after his accident, I thought this would not be possible for several reasons, um, mostly because I did not feel like it, really, um, because I might cry because this doesn't have a happy ending yet, because I don't understand what God's doing in the midst of this, and I can't point to blessings. I know they're coming, I'm certain of that, but I don't know what they are yet for the most part. But 
about three weeks ago, I think it hit me that this is exactly what I needed to be doing right now in the midst of the valley. Um, the soul needs to remember, to glorify, and to praise the Lord. I think David wrote a few words about that, didn't he? And it gives meaning to the words of Scripture to give thanks in all circumstances. Always be ready to give a reason for your hope. So, here I am. Giving a testimony forces you to think back over your own story in a good way and remember how God was working all along. It also forces you to use your own words. Now, I love words, particularly the way other people put them together. And if you've been around me and have it much, you know that I love quotes. Um, I probably shouldn't share this, but on my computer at home, I have a 30-page document of quotes. It's not really useful when it gets to 30 pages, let me just warn you. But I just love the way other people put words together. Um, unfortunately, none of those quotes is about me. I couldn't find my life story anywhere in there. So um, here we go. I've got I've to use my own words today. But I couldn't resist this one from Wendell Berry because I was reading one of his books just a few weeks ago, and this is how his character starts her own fictional autobiography. This is the story of my life that while I lived, it weighed upon me and pressed against me and filled all my senses to overflowing and now is like a dream dreamed. This is my story, my giving of thanks. Um, I thought that was beautifully said and so true. And I am grateful, starting with that gratitude for being called and pursued through my life. So I grew up on a farm west of Terre Haute my dad was a dentist, and my mom had a nursing degree, but she stayed home with my brother and me. And it um, was a good, safe, and stable home. I think a lot like Lynn's. Strong Judeo-Christian ethics, integrity, and hard work, and love of family, hard work in the far on the farm, and both in serving the community. Um, it was not a Christian home in the sense that we prayed or read the Bible. We didn't do any of those things. But mom and I attended the Episcopal Church, and that is where I was baptized and confirmed. I was neither encouraged nor discouraged from my faith. Um, but God was still very real to me. One of my grandmothers passed this little book on to me, written in 1853. I loved to read, and I'm sure she knew I would just read it and read it, and I did, and it's not a very happy story. But it, inspires, it inspired me with the faith of the child in this book, and I'm certain it was critical in forming my early convictions about God. I had Sunday school lessons and all of my favorite books, um, all of which came from that you know, Judeo-Christian background. They often referred to a creator. However it happened, um, I definitely believed in a holy God and wanted to please him. I had some notion of sin and some notion of omnipresence, though I certainly didn't know the word. But I had no idea that I could have a personal relationship with him. And it was many decades before I truly understood that God, in the, his word, always ties keeping his commandments to loving him. Those go together. Otherwise, we end up with legalism. So uh, that way of thinking kept me out of some kinds of trouble that led to some others later. By high school, I was involved with campus life and youth group and made a commitment to Christ, I think twice. In fact, my campus life leader walked me through the gospel, and I can still envision the picture he drew with the uh, gap between God's holiness and my sin and Jesus being the bridge. My other grandmother had given me a children's living Bible, and as far as I know, that was the only Bible in my home. It, um, 
that is filled with colorful highlighting now that I apparently did in high school, and then a book of common prayer. And I mention this because in my Episcopal church, I can still remember being in children's chapel and singing, I sing a song of the saints of God. I don't know if anybody here will know that song. I love that song so much. Um, it says, I sing a song of the saints of God, patient and brave and true, who toiled and fought and lived and died for the Lord they loved and knew. And that line, the Lord they loved and knew, has come to mean a lot to me now, as I, I see that I didn't know him or love him back then. But, but those words were always there, I guess. I apologize, I know you're getting a lot of sound here. During college, I did not join any Christian groups, nor did I attend church. So despite my active youth group and campus life experience, I was too busy with my newfound social life to take advantage of many opportunities I could have had to deepen my faith. But as a junior, I met a guy who was different than any of the other guys I knew. He wasn't just cute and funny, but he went to worship services twice a week, and he had recently been baptized in a church of Christ. We became very good friends, and then he became my boyfriend and we were almost inseparable once we started dating. After graduation, we married, yes, it's Tom, that's who I'm talking about. <laughs> Might have neglected to mention his name. We settled down in Lafayette, and although we had attended church regularly when we were dating, now it was kind of hard to reconcile our different faith backgrounds. We eventually, after five years, five or six years, joined a Methodist church after our son was born. And for the first time, I found out what it was like to be part of a body working, studying, praying, and enjoying fellowship together. Everything looked good on the outside, but we were not handling the stress of our jobs and home and family well at all. I was overwhelmed. I went to bed angry just about every night. Didn't know how to break the cycle and had too much pride to go seek help from the pastor. Nevertheless, we had a second child and were immediately thrust into a new reality. Carrie was in the NICU for five days, went home on seizure medicine, spent weeks in the hospital, and we soon started multiple therapies. By the time she was nine months old, she had significant developmental delays, labeled as cerebral palsy. And by the way, you saw her last week right up here when I ran down to get her, and wherever Debbie is, I owe her an apology for disrupting her, her lecture, I think. I was still working part-time, I was tired, I was mad at Tom much of the time, and I was fearful about the future for my daughter. And for a few weeks, I cried every day during the drive between work and the babysitter. Until then, things had just seemed to turn out really well for me, whether I gave a good effort or not, and I attributed that all to me. My faith, my good choices, my excellent character. But there was no place for God or gratitude in that. I didn't know about attributes like sovereignty or omnipotence. And since I didn't really believe he was in control, I hadn't given him credit or blame for the circumstances. But I had had an expectation of success based on me. I think during those weeks, I was coming to terms with the fact that it wasn't going to just turn out okay this time. And I was in mourning. And the irony is what, that I didn't know a lot of what was coming. That we would be buying her first wheelchair a year later. That we were just beginning our ride on the epilepsy roller coaster. And it truly is a roller coaster. <laughs> that at 23, which she is now, that she still wouldn't talk or walk or feed herself. Um, but I also didn't know that we'd be incredibly blessed by relationships that we've had only because of my daughter, that her circumstances would be worse than I had imagined, but that life would actually be much better, that she would still be our cheerful, patient Miss Sunshine. 
and that we would have the hope of heaven, which means more to us now than it would have otherwise, where she will know no limitations and no pain, no barriers to communication, and where we will be more like her, more loving, more patient, and more joyful. I think that's a little more important than her being more like us, probably. So I didn't have a close walk with the Lord. We had just started attending a church regularly. But I did believe some true things, that he could use our situation for good and that we could get through anything with his help. And I certainly appeared cheerful and strong, and I felt that way most of the time. What others didn't realize was that my faith really was in me because how could I have faith in God? I didn't know him at all, right? The early faith I had been blessed with hadn't evolved. It was shallow. I hadn't been in the word, and I hadn't been participating in a body of believers. So my ideas about God were of my own making. I was really prideful. Well, Carrie, when she was one, um, when she was one, I left my job. I loved it, but it was a really good thing in our home for me to be home. Um, Life still seemed crazy, but I was a little less grumpy and a little better rested than I had been. And I apologize for all the bumps and... We struggled along for a couple of years when another blow hit. One morning, I jumped out of bed. I thought I heard a seizure coming from my daughter's room, and it was my son, who was five. He was having a seizure, and we had no idea that he had epilepsy as well. He was later diagnosed with ADHD. Now, fortunately, his seizures are well-controlled with medicine, and he has since outgrown those. Um, But it was one more example of things just not going the way I had expected. His behavioral issues were an issue in our home, no doubt about it. Uh, Tom and I frequently disagreed on discipline, and our marriage was not thriving. Our church body continued to be a great support for our family, however, and we became more and more involved there. And not long before we moved here, I participated in a year-long study in which we read most of the Bible. That was really eye-opening to me because I realized for the first time that the Old Testament and New Testament made up one story of God and his people. And I had written off the Old Testament prior to that. I really had I, because of my church background. So that was huge for me. Wow, this all fits together somehow. In 1999, we moved down here due to a job transfer. We left our church family and therapists as well as a home we loved, and it was very difficult. But we settled into life in Brownsburg and found our way to this very church, which is where we would develop the high view of scripture that would mostly impact our lives. Um, more than everything we'd been through before that. I've had great opportunity, like Lynn said, for growth through this very study of habits, our small group retreats, and of course the teaching on Sunday morning. I've learned to love reading and studying the Word, and I've learned it from godly women who unintentionally served as role models for me. I appreciate more and more how the words of the Bible, the ongoing story, fit together, and it just makes sense to me now that it's either all true or none of it is. It doesn't logically make sense any other way, and that appeals to the way my brain works. Relationship with the Lord is still a bit of a challenge for me. I know that I'm called to that, but even in my quiet time, my tendency is to read a verse, and that reminds me of another verse, and before I know it, I'm chasing ideas through Scripture rather than sitting still, being quiet, and talking to Him and listening. So I need to back up a little in our story. Because of my son's epilepsy, we decided not to have any more biological children and pursued the idea of adoption. We had talked about this before having children. Um, Like many people, we'd kind of forgotten about it once we started making our own babies. But as a child, many of the books I'd read and then revisited with my son 
were about orphans. And that story of needing a home, a family, a mother and father is popular in literature for a reason, right? It moves us, and I think it meets some deep desire that we have in our own hearts for that kind of love. Um, so we decided 15 years prior to, to get licensed to adopt, and it was a long process, we, it, mostly because of us. <laughs> We'd moved during that time, and so we were licensed and did not find a good match for our home and our family. The timing never seemed right, and our marriage probably wasn't in a great place for that. But three years ago, we were in a better place, not perfect. We had as empty a nest as we were going to have, and not because, and I want to stress this, not because we are martyrs or angels or saints, any more than the rest of you are saints, but because our hearts continued to ache for children who needed homes. Um, and because in our home, we're limited by our, my daughter's condition as far as what changes we might make in our middle age. Um, our home seems like the best base for ministry, and we found that that fostering seemed like a way to serve. We felt God calling us to serve in that way. This time we became licensed very quickly in about six months. We were motivated by some news we got almost immediately, and that is that a couple of children we knew might need a foster home. Um, we started building a deeper relationship with them, and their mother actually allowed them to spend some weekends with us. I could envision them being a part of our family eventually. But that door closed as suddenly as it opened. And that very night, we got our first call for a placement from the case manager who had licensed us. She had not called earlier because she knew we were waiting for these two children. But she didn't know what had happened that day, and yet when the call came in for this little girl who needed a place that night, she thought of us. She remembered Jessie from a previous placement, and she knew us and believed that we were the right home for her. So as quickly as the door closed, a door opened, and a bouncy, bright-eyed, eager, talkative, five-year-old Jessie, who many of you know, came into our lives very late that night after going to the hospital. We were called within a week and told if we were not going to be licensed for adoption, they would move her to a home that was. They did not expect her to go home. Um, by then, we knew enough about her history that we were her fifth home in two years to know that she needed to stay put. And we adopted her 11 months later. She has ADHD as well um, and some attachment and trauma issues, and she and I have very personality types, so this has not been easy. Um, I continue to ask God for more gentleness and kindness and patience and love. Fruits of the Spirit are very real to me right now. There's so much more I could say about adoption and how it relates to our own adoption by God the Father. This has opened my eyes greatly to how much he loves us and longs to rescue us and call us his children, even when we don't know that that's what we want or need. And as for Jesse, life will be a challenge for her and also with her, but she brought energy and exuberance to our home. Um, whether we can keep up is another story. But when I'm discouraged, my husband has asked me, do you have anything better to do? And the answer, no, I really don't. So we'll be desperately praying, I suspect, for many years. But I wonder how God might use her story of adoption one day to glorify him. And on a more day-to-day -day level, I enjoy her interaction with my other two children so much. Just a couple of nights ago when I was making dinner, she was playing Monopoly with her brother, and Carrie was sitting watching them, and it was just a sweet, sweet time. So neither marriage nor adoption turned out to be fairy tales. Nobody here is surprised by that, right? It's always a little easier in a book, right? Um, I was fortunate, though, 
to choose a good man who loves me well and in recent years has come to take his leadership role in our home seriously. I'm not easy to live with, and neither of us could have walked away and justified it by the world's thinking, but we didn't, and I am glad for that, more glad as the years go by. Um, a few weeks ago, I got another one of those phone calls that turns your world upside down, and some of you have had those calls. Some of you have had worse. In fact, as many of you heard the next morning, I find out, found out that my dad had died in an accident, as I typed these words, I wrote, I still don't believe it. Surely I'm talking about someone else. <laughs> about 10 days later, we lost Patty, who's had such an integral impact on this body. She was one of my, my dear friends, too. So it's safe to say that this is one of the saddest periods of my life, maybe the saddest. Um, and while I still can't point to the blessings and can't point to the happy ending, I have felt upheld by him, upheld by his word, upheld by his people. I know that he cares, and I know that somehow this fits into the story, which he knows the end of. There is a lot about suffering and illness and death and eternity that I don't understand, but it's not going to be answered now. It's a little too soon to say, so how does this change the next 50, the next, sorry, the last 53 years, it doesn't change, right? The next years, how does it change those? And it's too early, I'm still right in the midst of the, of the mourning process. But I did find a way to work in one more quote from Thornton Wilder. The highest tribute to the dead is not grief, but gratitude. And so I started with gratitude, and I want to end with that because it's a good place to focus. There's so many things I can learn from my dad's life, from Patty's life, about how they lived and died. And those regrets I may have for conversations that didn't happen are hopefully going to result in wisdom for the future. Because the Lord I know and love is both powerful and good, I can trust him rather than myself. I can trust him with the future because of who he is and what he has done. And certainly by revisiting my story, I can see how he's provided people and circumstances to slowly but surely draw me to him. Can we pray? Let's end with that. Father, I thank you for drawing every woman here today. And I thank you for their stories and how each of them fit into your overall story. Please remind us that you have given each one a part to play in the eventual complete bringing of your kingdom and enable us in every circumstances to lift our voices to worship you, our King, and to find our strength in the shadow of your wings. In Jesus' name, amen.